0: My guest today, Jill Filipovich, is author of the new book, The H-Spot, The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness. She is a Nairobi-based journalist, but we caught up while she was on book tour in her hometown of Seattle. Jill is someone I've known both online and in real life for many years. She's a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times and a regular contributor to The Guardian and Cosmopolitan, among many other publications. She is one of the original pioneers of political blogging. Her contributions to the blog Feminist helped inspire the growth of a very vibrant feminist blogosphere that exists to this day. We kick off with a discussion about some of her global health reporting from Ghana and Niger. Jill and I spoke a few days after the State Department issued some clarifying guidance on how the Trump administration would interpret what is known as the global gag rule. Jill explains exactly what the global gag rule is and how Trump's interpretation of it is a profound deviation from how previous Republican administrations sought to prevent U.S. global health aid from in any way contributing to abortions. We then pivot to a conversation about her life and career and her book, which is getting rave reviews. You can find a link to her book on globaldispatchespodcast.com. So the conversation you are about to hear was also recorded in video for Blogging Heads. This is a platform that's been around for years that engages journalists and public intellectuals in in in-depth and engaging conversations about issues of the day and much more. So if you want to watch Jill and I have this conversation and view other conversations on that platform, go to bloggingheads.tv. You can, of course, just listen on. And now here is Jill Flipovich. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I us actually just thinking about this. You are one of two people in the world that I'm not related to that I've hung out with on three different continents. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I think you're the only person in the world that I'm not dating who I've hung out with on three different continents.
0: Well, congrats on the new book.
1: Thank you. Thank you. You're actually catching me in my childhood bedroom in Seattle on, um, <laughs> on the book tour.
0: Excellent. So, okay. So you have been someone I, I've known personally for a while, but also I've, I've read for even longer than I, I knew you in real life. Um, um, so, I'm thrilled to, to be speaking with you. I wanted to to kick off about something that's sort of somewhat timely and, and something you've been writing about, which is the global gag rule. So, we're speaking, I think, about a week after the State Department issued its final guidance on what is to be an expanded version of the global gag rule under the Trump administration. I just spewed some jargon that is like familiar to you and I who cover these issues, but can you explain sort of what I just, what what did I just say actually means in, in, in real life and in real terms? Because you've done some great reporting on this.
1: Sure. Thank you. Um, So the global gag rule is uh, an executive order that has been in place under Republican presidents since Reagan, Democratic presidents take it out. Um, and it basically says that uh, U.S. funding cannot go to any organization abroad that so much as mentions the word abortion, tells women about their legal abortion-related options in their own countries, um, or advocates for abortion rights where they live. Um, Under previous Republican presidents, the rule started with Reagan, this law had only applied to family planning funding. So under George W. Bush, that was about $600 million in USAID funding, which was significant. And and it had... um, Pretty terrible impacts when it was in place. There's been some good research on how the gag rule actually made abortion rates go up um, because it cut off contraception access for some of the most for, for some of the world's most vulnerable women. Um, it's important to just add an addendum here that since the 70s, U.S. funds have never been able to pay for elective abortion abroad. So none of this money was going to fund abortions mm-hmm. in the first place. The, the Helms going,
0: Law, right? This is like right, the, that's the famous the Helms, Hel- Amendment. Helms Amendment says you know, U.S. government funding cannot pay for abortions abroad.
1: Right. Um. So the gag rule was just cutting off money that was paying for other stuff just because of the groups that were receiving it were also pro-choice. So Trump reinstated this. Obama took the rule out. Trump reinstated it. Um, and he's basically put it on steroids. And so instead of just applying to family planning funding, um, what the State Department clarified this week is that this applies to all foreign aid funding. Um. So it applies to a... I think it's $8.8 billion, Mm -hmm. um, which is obviously a hugely significant sum. Um, So it applies to things like money for HIV AIDS, um, for malaria, for childhood vaccinations. And I think what a lot of folks kind of don't recognize, and Mark, you've seen this in your reporting, um, a huge development in health access in developing countries has been to really centralize services. So to say that you know if you're going to get your healthcare, you can get your kids immunization, you can get your malaria pills, you can get your contraception, um, all in one place. And so what this is effectively done is say that if you're the you know the midwife who's offering um, somebody's HIV medication at this centralized location, you're their primary caregiver, and that woman comes in and she says I'm pregnant and I want to end the pregnancy. If you're receiving any U.S. money to pay for her AIDS drugs or her kids vaccines or her malaria medicine, you either can tell her the, the truth about her legal options if abortion is legal in that country and lose your U.S. funding. Um, or you can lie to her and refuse to give her the medical information that you as a healthcare provider should be obligated to give.
0: And, and the, the global health NGO people that, that I've been talking to since this guidance was clarified. And I said it, it needed to be clarified because the, the initial global gag rule order was issued like on the fourth day of his presidency. But like a lot of those initial executive orders, it was like very sloppily written and could have been interpreted in a few ways. And it turns out it is in fact, like they do mean what they say when they mean like all global health funding, <sighs> yeah. not just. Interpreting it in the
1: funding. worst possible yeah, way.
0: Yeah. So, so it's a very expansive interpretation and. And yeah, yeah. To, to your point about this, there has been, as you said, this trend in in global health and and in healthcare delivery in the developing world to integrate care across different sectors. So you just go to that again, you know, as you said, that one place. And I was talking to someone in the global health NGO community when news of this uh, expanded interpretation came out the other week or this week earlier this week, and she said that you know it's not like we can build another hospital down the road, you know, that doesn't do like uh, that doesn't like refer people to uh, a Abortion centers where, in in, in countries where abortion is legal. So it's, and and the uh, somewhat irony here is that it's, you know, obviously cheaper and there's been a lot of US pressure to integrate care because it is cheaper and more effective.
1: Right. And I mean, you also have this dynamic um, where a lot of countries and, you know, Ghana, I think is a really excellent kind of illustration of this. Where you have these kind of mobile midwives. So especially in rural areas where there isn't great healthcare delivery, um, especially for contraception, you have midwives who go door to door and talk to women in the home and men too, but it, yeah, the reality is it's usually women um, about their kind of whole family health. So they talk about, are you pregnant? What are you eating? Can we get you prenatal care? Um, let me tell you about contraception and kind of break down misconceptions about that. Are your kids immunized? Here's the immunization schedule that you should probably follow. Um, And it's pretty, it's been incredibly effective at really creating these links between women in their homes and then health centers. Um, The midwives can also deliver services directly so they can, they can bring um, a Depo-Provera shot. They can bring a pack of pills. Um, And in Ghana, some of these midwives, not all of them, um, but some have also been trained in basic abortion care. So, you know, if you're, if you're talking about the Ghana Health Service, which is delivering these services, which is also sometimes when women ask and it's necessary, referring them to private clinics, um, many of which are going to lose funding under the gag rule, um, that is such a fundamental disruption in this really hard won health victory that these countries have been assembling, right? This has taken decades. Um, to rebuild trust in the public health system and to create these linkages, um, and to train and educate healthcare professionals, and this is incredibly disruptive to that.
0: And uh, it's it, it's sort of I, I, I should say your your point of, about like the the sort of midwives that go out into the world. Sometimes they're called health extension workers. Um, I think maybe in, in one of our trips together in, in Cameron, we, we visited some some groups that, that do this kind of health extension work. But in general, this is, again, like another one of those key innovations in delivering health care to rural places that are among the poorest places on the planet that like previously to these like mo- this, these, basically nurses, these trained nurses that go out to villages and are like are the point of care, the point of access in which these rural communities can access healthcare, whether it's like a malaria pill, whether it's like getting a measles vaccination, but also – Perhaps in some cases, um, you know, a, a referral to like abortion services if abortion is legal in, in that country. And, and so now if that health extension worker continues to, I suppose, say that abortion is legal in that country, that that could be an option given your circumstances, that person will also no longer be able to, you know, deliver that measles vaccine. That, that's, that's the big concern, I think.
1: Right. So, and where this even gets even more insidious, um, I was in Niger a couple months ago doing a piece for the guardian on contraception access and abortion is illegal in Niger. Um, you know, there's a few very limited circumstances where you can have a legal procedure, but for the most part, abortion is widely outlawed. So there aren't really organizations (laughs) providing legal abortions in Niger. Um, Instead, you have organizations like, for example, Marie Stopes, which is one of the biggest um, uh, sort of women's and reproductive health uh, chain of clinics around the world. Um, So Marie Stopes is in Niger. They are in rural villages in Niger where there's there's no one else. I mean, this is not like New York City. Right. I mean, this is these are some of the furthest flung, um, tiny, tiny rural villages um, in the country who have not had consistent healthcare delivery, certainly haven't had contraception delivery. So in these places, abortion is totally off the table in the first place. But what Marie Stopes is bringing is contraception. Niger has the highest birth rate uh, per woman in the world, so women have an average of seven kids. It by extension has incredibly high rates of maternal and infant mortality. So what Marie Stopes is trying to do is not necessarily to get women to have fewer kids, um, but just to space their pregnancies so fewer women die. Um, and it's been a pretty successful venture so far. Um, they're making, you know, incremental but small progress. Marie Stopes is going to lose all of its money under the global gag rule. They're going to lose money in Niger, even though they don't provide abortions in Niger, because they provide abortions elsewhere, and because in other countries they do tell women their legal rights, um, and they also terminate pregnancies in places like, you know, Ghana, for example. Um, but because they're a global NGO, that uh, that funding pool is going to affect all of their services. And, you know, you think about this clinic, you know, I, I visited one in Niger, where it is Marie Stopes that is in there, you know, I think three or four days a week, there were dozens of women in there to get free contraception, to ask whatever questions they wanted, um, to hear about contraception for the first time for many of them, um, in an effort, you know, to to make their themselves safer and to make their families safer and healthier, and to have fewer children who die and to lower their risk of dying themselves. You know, and the idea that you would call that, you know, a pro-life policy to me is, I mean, it, it it's an, an offensive misuse of the term. Uh,
0: though it's probably fair to say that um, Marie, under like a, a more restrictive interpretation of the global gag rule that was in place during the Bush years, Murray Stopes would still have lost its, its uh, funding in, in the circumstance you just described, though, right?
1: Yes, and they lost it in the Bush years, <laughs> and, and they did lose it in the Bush years, and, right?
0: Yeah, uh, but I, I guess what makes this version of it so much more intense is that every global health organization around the world who receives U.S. funding, whether it's for like child nutrition or measles or something, having nothing to do with reproductive health at all, still has to certify that they that none of their branches, none of their subcontractors or grantees uh, have anything to do with with abortion.
1: Right. And, you know, in, in the context of how a lot of these organizations actually operate, I mean, that becomes near. it, it becomes extremely difficult. I don't want to say impossible. But, you know, for example, um, in many countries, like, so in some of my reporting in Ghana, this was a thing that came up again and again, you have these consortiums of health professionals who all meet, right? Um, people that kind of work in these overlapping spaces, in reproductive health, in preventing malaria, in childhood vaccinations, and you know you have organizations and quarterly meetings and task sharing agreements, um, and just kind of ongoing conversations of you know what are you seeing at your health centers? what are we seeing at ours? What kind of innovations are we working on? Where can we share some of the burden of healthcare delivery? Um, you know they talk to researchers about where the researchers should be directing their efforts. There's a lot of collaboration. So if one of the groups in that room, is Planned Parenthood or Marie Stopes, which do provide legal and safe abortions in Ghana. Um, what does that mean for somebody who then is at the NGO that works primarily on, let's say, malaria or contraception and doesn't provide abortions, um, but still under the kind of language of this rule could arguably be you know, told that they are then kind of promoting abortion by working in concert with these other organizations or referring women to them? Um, and that's really dangerous. It splits apart these incredibly valuable linkages, and we want healthcare professionals talking to each other, right? Like we want the people on the front lines of all of these complex and often overlapping uh, healthcare needs having conversations and talking to researchers and strategy, t- telling funders kind of where um, where we need more resources. And this, again, really breaks that apart. It says that if you're working on HIV, then you need to kind of silo that away from reproductive health, which makes absolutely no sense.
0: Can we talk about Niger for a minute? Because you are, I think, the, the only person I never know who's, who's been there. It is like not uh, a place that's on the beaten track by, by uh, me, me, even among sort of global journalists like, like yourself. So what brought you to Niger? How did you, how did you go there?
1: Yeah. So I went, uh, for two stories for the guardian. Um, one was about why Niger has the highest birth rate in the world. So like I said earlier in the conversation, women in Niger have an average of seven kids. And my editor was curious, like, well, why, why is that? What what is the kind of complex set of factors that's leading uh, to that statistic? Um, and then I also went to do a story on girls' education. Um, you know, I think you are seeing an increased number of journalists go to Niger, but it's a lot sort of about migration stories, which are, which are really important. Um, but there is much less attention paid to the fact that Niger is, you know, healthcare wise, certainly one of the most underserved countries in the world. Um, and certainly the most underserved place that I've ever been.
0: So what, what did you find, uh, about the, the, um, the high birth rate question, like what, how, like was, obviously it's a very complex answer, but like, what, what did you conclude? Was it really mostly lack of access to contraception?
1: No, which is what was so interesting about it. I mean, that was kind of one of my assumptions. Well, that going was my in. assumption. Right. <laughs> <laughs> was like, you know, I, I, there is, there is a lack of access to contraception that that is real, especially um, in rural areas and Niger is a very, very rural population. So that's an issue. Um, but really what seemed to be driving the high birth rate was a deep cultural value put on large families. So you would talk to, I would talk to women and I would, you know, would have, a woman would have five or six kids and I would say, well, how many kids do you want? And she would say 10 or nine or 12. Um, whatever it was, was always higher than, well, you know, seemed to me higher to be a very seven, large family. because that's the higher average, right? Right. So there was um, also a, an interesting study done in Niger about how many children people want and women say that they want, an. A- women on average said that they wanted nine and men on average said they wanted, I think, 11 and people have on average seven. So people are actually having fewer kids than they say they desire, um, which is really interesting. Um, and so obviously, you know, contraception delivery is important, but you can give people all the contraception in the world. And if they want to have nine kids, <laughs> then you know, just having access to birth control isn't going to make them have three. Um, so part of what, uh, reproductive rights organizations in Niger are doing is not trying to say like, okay, no, you should only have three kids. Like that's not going to work and it's paternalistic. Um, what instead they're trying to do is get women to space their kids. So when you have seven or nine or 12 kids right back to back and you don't space them every two years, it weakens your uterus. It, you know, makes the, uh, probability of dying in childbirth astronomically higher. Um, And it also makes for less healthy babies. So the sort of education piece on it is telling women, okay, you need to wait two years after a birth, let your body heal and recover before you have a second child. Um, And then on the kind of cultural piece of it, a lot of girls get married, you know, right around the age of 15. So you do have a pretty significant adolescent marriage issue. Um, And even though people, you know, don't have a super high life expectancy, if you get married at 15, you have a lot of potential reproductive years. It also means you drop out of school. Um, It means your family is more likely to live in poverty. Uh, You have huge numbers of men that go abroad, usually to Ivory Coast, um, some to Ghana, some to Nigeria, and basically kind of send money back, come back a couple times a year, um, get their wives pregnant and leave again. (laughs) Um, So it's this really kind of complicated set of social circumstances. that overlap with the kind of lack of healthcare that drives up these birth rates. Um, and that frankly creates a lot of, uh, sort of economic challenges for the country.
0: Is there a story or, or an example of, of one woman woman in, in Nigeria, Niger who you met that sort of illustrates this dynamic that you just described?
1: Yeah. I mean, I met a lot of really amazing women when I was there. Um, there, there was one woman I was talking to, um, her name was Halima. She didn't, I don't think she made it into my story, but she was 15. She had just had her first baby. Um, her husband was 18. He was this kind of like adorable, you know, skinny, kind of slightly awkward teenager with this big smile. She was, you know, this really, really pretty sweet girl. Um, and I was chatting with her with my translator and my translator was, uh, lived kind of in, in the in the big city and, um, was clearly kind of much more, uh, attuned to the West. Like her husband worked in the United States. Um, she was, you know, I think a bit more, uh, kind of a social elite. Um, and so I was talking to Halima about her marriage and I, you know, basically asked like, well, look, why did you get married? You know, he, she met her husband they fell in love. They got married right away. And I said, why didn't you, you know, why didn't you guys just like hang out for a couple of years, <laughs> get to know each other better and not get married. And she basically was like, well, you know, if you get married really like past the age of 18 here, like you are kind of an old maid. Um,
0: well, and, right, probably because you there's like three good birthing years that you're that you're wasting. Right.
1: Right. And it's she also was, you know, I was like, well, what if OK, well, what would happen if woman was like, I don't know, 25 and not married? Um, and she was like, well, then there, everybody's going to assume there's something wrong with you. Hmm. Um, because like, why hasn't anybody married you yet? And, you know, she was like, my husband is a nice guy. And it just, you know, of course, like we like each other. We got married. So she dropped out of school. He stayed in school. Um, She lives with his mother and his family, has a small baby. But we had this very funny interaction where, you know, I interviewed her for 45 minutes and sort of toward the end of it, um, asked Fanta, my translator, to tell her, you know, I'm 33 and somebody's going to marry me next year when I'm 34. (laughs) And the translator tells her. And this woman looks at me, like we've been having this totally normal conversation, and she looks at me like I have three heads and asks Fanta to repeat herself, (laughs) you know, she does. Um, And then she kind of whispers something really quietly. And Fanta, my translator, is like, she says that she is stunned. (laughs) (laughs) So it was this like very interesting sort of exchange that, you know, to me getting married while you're still in high school and having a kid by 15 is kind of so beyond the realm of, of what is sort of normal in my life. And then I think for her, some like random 33 year old showing up in her village who who's getting married in a year was like literally unimaginable. You know, it was like if a UFO had like landed, um, in her backyard and, you know, so these kind of norms obviously are like very, very deeply entrenched. Um, and they also just shape our sort of Uh, most basic assumptions about what our lives are going to look like and what's valuable. And shifting that is not something that happens overnight. And it's not something that happens with just kind of delivery of health services. It's also about kind of broadening um, what people, the information people have access to and how large their worlds are. And that's a really challenging thing to do.
0: Well, I, I'm wondering, I, I know we're skipping ahead a little bit, but I wonder if there's anything in that conversation with Halima, was that her name? Yeah. Um, with, with Halima, the, the 15-year-old uh, in, in her world and in, in your world is like a 33-year-old about to get married, that is... is that, that you address in, in your book, which I know, you know, has to do with these kind of larger conversation, con, the larger context and in conversations about happiness and, and sort of women's fulfillment is, is, is there some like connection that you might draw between kind of your experience and and her experience and and how you translated your experience into your, your new book?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's, in a context in which somebody like Halima lives, there is zero emphasis put on women's fulfillment. The idea that women would even get to feel fulfilled in their lives um, is pretty absent. Um, you know, One of the things that sort of came up in that reporting was I was trying to get to, you know again, like why women choose to have this many children. Um, and I would ask women, what was your favorite part of your day? And there were two answers that I got. One was when I get a break from work, So when I can like sit and relax, which happens for about an hour of a 16 hour day. Um, And then the second answer was when I bathe my baby. And it was this really, I don't know, for me, kind of striking reminder that like, yes, kids are fun. And one of the reasons people have kids, you know, sure, they are two hands in one mouth if you're an agrarian society and you need kids to work on the fields. But they're also a source of love and joy and you know, it's really hard to look at a cute baby when you're giving it a bath and not feel a little sort of twinge of happiness. Um, and so, you know, even in this kind of very difficult context in which most of the women that I interviewed live, there was still these like small efforts to see pleasure, um, you know, an efforts to c- carve out a little bit of happiness in what was kind of mostly a uh, fairly trying set of circumstances. And that to me is a very kind of universal thing about being a human being, um, all of us, even when stuff is difficult and hard and, you know, unimaginably hard for somebody, you know, like me, um, people do still seek out pleasure. So, you know, for the book, obviously I was looking at a very American context, which is, which is quite different (laughs) than a lot of the places uh, where I report. Um, but you know, even here, part of the research for the book was talking to women whose lives are not nearly as privileged as mine. Um, And trying to get a sense of how their lives are made harder by uh, both sort of policy and social norms, which, you know, is true of women everywhere in the world. Um, And then also where women do seek pleasure and where we do kind of create in our own lives uh, these kind of little areas of shelter and happiness. Um, And yeah, that kind of seeking does seem to happen everywhere.
0: So I remember... You telling me? I think we're in, we're in the country of of Georgia on, on a bus somewhere, and and you said that you had this germ of an idea for a book about sort of female happiness and and pleasure and and, and seeking that happiness. And and congrats on actually having been fulfilled so many years hey, later. Like,
1: like Very 10 cool. years later. Yeah.
0: Um, but let's, let's, so you're also someone I've, I've sort of known online before I like knew you in person through through your blog and through writing, but let's like turn back, like, like talk about you, where you're from. Cause I suspect a lot of people watching a lot of people listening, know, you know, your work, have been following you online for many years, but where are you from in real life? Like uh, where are you from? <laughs> yeah. Presumably um, Seattle where I'm speaking I'm to you I'm from Seattle, which is where I am yeah. right now.
1: Um, yeah, I grew up in Seattle, um, then went to college in New York at NYU
0: were and, you always, like, was there something, uh, like, even in before your your sort of college years, how attuned were you to, like, the necessity of feminism or the sort of gender dynamics and how they sort of shaped our our world, our society?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I was very, you know, since kind of being a kid, very um, interested, I guess, uh, in those creatures that I kind of saw as vulnerable Um so, I mean, I was like a, a baby animal rights activist. You know, I remember being in, like, fourth grade and getting all of my classmates to write letters to Procter & Gamble to ask them to stop animal testing.
0: It's like a Lisa um, Simpson style.
1: Right? Yeah, yeah really. Um, so, you know, I think was always interested in injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I also think it's kind of like a young a girl it was very hard to kind of think of myself as somebody who may be on the like unjust end of the world, if that makes sense. It was easier to kind of look downward and think like who is sort of smaller than me and being treated worse um and that you know when you're ten and <laughs> and female seems to be animals um and so that was kind of a locus for what I found interesting um and it really wasn't i mean i in in high school, you know I wrote for the school newspaper and always loved writing and wanted to be a writer and wrote a lot about, you know, sort of racism at the school and economic inequality and sort of perceived injustices. Um, but certainly was not particularly attuned to feminism. Um, and it was something that I thought sounded kind of old fashioned and a little bit, uh, stodgy. <laughs> um, and it really wasn't until I got to college that that sort of the, the feminism thing really clicked. And I sort of shifted my views on it. And that became a real focus of my writing and my work.
0: Well, was there a, like a moment when that sort of light bulb went off for you when you're in college that you sort of discovered that feminism was, you know, this this real important, powerful and, and currently relevant force?
1: There was and it's this really sort of cliched story. Like I wish I could say that I had this like great moment of personal awakening. But it was a women's studies class, um, that I didn't even want to take. Like I was, I was in the last orientation group. Um, all the classes I wanted were full, I got stuck in this, uh, gender studies class. And the first day the professor passed out, uh, these surveys just to kind of get a sense of who was in the class about, you know, what our backgrounds were. And one of the questions on the survey was, are you a feminist? And it was like circle one, yes or no. Um, and I remember staring at that for, you know, for like the whole class, basically being like, well, I'm not like a feminist, but I, it also feels so like weird and stupid to say no. Cause obviously I believe in women's rights and I just, I sort of couldn't decide. So, and I think I ended up circling no. Cause I was like, if it takes me an hour to figure this out, then I, mm-hmm. I guess the answer is no. Um, well that kind of got me thinking, okay, well, what, what does, what is feminism really? Um, and you know, through that class, read a bunch of books and had a lot of interesting conversations and, had my baby feminist eyes opened wide.
0: So this was probably what, like the early 2000s?
1: This is 2001.
0: So I'm wondering if like your, if like a, Person in your situation now, kind of coming from this kind of very kind of similar circumstances where like land at that was an NYU. Uh, yeah. So would like land in that freshman NYU course. If they would have that same kind of hesitancy, or at least from my, where I, where I said it seems that like we as like a society have become a little more aware and conscious of like feminism as like a, an important sort of force and not something that is like, you know, the, the bra burning burning kind of era.
1: Yeah, I think it's a totally different landscape. I think you're right. I mean, I think any kind of young woman who wound up in that gender studies class had probably already like been on Tumblr and, you know, could drop terms like intersectionality, right? Like there's so, um, I mean, feminism, I think, has been so uh, increasingly accessible because of the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, It has become cool, um, which I think there are some downsides to that, but overall it's probably a good thing. Um, and you know, I, I talk to young women on college campuses pretty regularly. Um, I see them on social media. It seems like feminism, as sort of a movement, is more relevant in the lives of young women today than certainly at any other point um, in my life.
0: Well, and, and I should say, like to to your credit, you you're part of the reason that's the case. I mean, you, uh, you along with like the Jessica Valenti and, and Vanessa Valenti who started feministing, you started feminist. Like like these were like really important, you know, online resources for so many years, like around that era for people who are trying to you know discover themselves, I think, and and understand a little more about like feminism is, I mean, it taught me a lot. And I was like uh, a man, you're about your age at the (laughs) same time. So how, how did you, I guess, gravitate towards writing about these issues on the internet and kind of being that pioneer that, that you became in that era?
1: Yeah. So, um, and I always knew that I wanted to write. So I studied journalism and politics in college. Um, And sort of right at the front end of the of the blogging craze, um, I was working at a a magazine and I didn't necessarily have a ton to do in my my summer internship Um, and was also an editor of the college paper and our conservative columnist. Um, who is also a friend of mine, had started this blog. And, you know, he wrote all kinds of, you know, sort of conservative opinions, all of which I found totally wrong and reprehensible and would spend like half my days at this internship, like commenting on his blog. And he finally was just like, chill, just start your own. Like, you don't need to use my comment section. So I started um, a sort of very small blog, which lasted for, you know, maybe nine months. Uh, And then Lauren Bruce, who's the woman who founded Feminist, uh, who's this incredible woman who, she lives in Indiana at the time, she was a pretty young single mom um, living in Lafayette and started the blog as kind of her uh, route to to the outside world to have these kind of conversations with people all over the country, invited me to join on and start writing with her on feminists. So I did that in, I think, 2004 2005. Um, And, you know, sort of in this time studying journalism, I had thought I wanted to be a journalist uh, but I was also in college during the Bush years and the sort of run up to the Iraq war and the way that I felt like the journalistic establishment really kind of fell down on itself um, after 9-11 made me extremely skeptical. Um, so I ended up going to law school instead because wanted to do sort of more advocacy work. Um, but yeah, blogged the whole time and was sort of blogging on the side and writing about feminism, which, you know, during college had become this kind of very animating issue for me. Um, and just sort of hit it at the right time. You know, like you said, it's when feministing was starting, there was this increasingly large ecosystem of feminists and political blogs. And we all kind of like found each other on the internet. And it, it felt really cool and exciting.
0: Well, was there a moment you recall where you something you wrote, you felt like had an actual real world impact that here you yeah. are kind of writing this blog in the early days of blogging on on feminist issues where um, you actually sort of feel like you made like a, 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 like a meaningful difference in, in sort of a tangible way.
1: That's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it still happens sometimes we're all, I mean, the f- sort of first email that I got from, you know, a young woman who was like in high school being like, I feel like I'm the only person at my school who thinks about this stuff. And you've made me think about this differently, you know, and I want to be a feminist writer too. And how do I start? Um you know the first time you get one of those emails and you're like 20 and you're like well I'm also a child so I'm not <laughs> I'm also not totally sure how to answer that. Um but it feels amazing. You know I it was a weird thing. I remember I would just never look at like the back end of the blog and our traffic stats because in my head I was writing and talking to like 10 people. Um and time I would look, it was like, you know a million people were on your site this month, and it was like, "Okay, I need to not know that <laughs> that's that's not information that i that I can have um I think sort of with with hindsight, it is easier to see the impact that these blogs had um at the time, it just felt fun and kind of cathartic. but you know, I think you look around at the sort of early folks in the blogging days um you know, Jessica Valenti, even people like Ezra Klein and Matt Iglesias, and you know, folks that got their start um, on these kind of small blogs, and we all felt very rebellious. You know, are now people that are really shaping kind of broader public thought in mainstream publications. Um, and I think that's really cool. And you know, I I do think it's having a pretty uh, significant impact in how we talk about these issues.
0: No, I I feel privileged to have known all of you. When, <laughs> um, so how at what point did you make decide to make that? kind of big, like early to mid-career switch. I mean, you had gone to law school, you were a lawyer, uh, but now I know you, the world knows you as like a journalist, author of, of the new book. What inspired that uh, switch? And, and like, how did you, I suppose, some of the courage to do so?
1: Um. So I worked at a law firm for about three and a half years. And to the firm's credit, it is a great firm. It was super progressive. Um, my job was fine. Like it wasn't, you know, I wasn't miserable. Um, I got to use my brain, which is not a thing a lot of people get to do in their jobs. Um, it was challenging. My colleagues were nice, but it certainly didn't feel super fulfilling. So I was working as, you know, a, an early career lawyer at a law firm, which is very demanding. Um, and then I was also writing part time. So I was writing for the blog. And by this point, um, writing opportunities had to expand it out a bit more as well. So I was writing a little more regularly for The Guardian um, I did a little bit of stuff for the Huffington Post. I had been an editor at Alternet for some chunk of time in there. Um, so I had kind of these two careers going on. Uh and it just wasn't sustainable. I ended up getting really, really sick. Um, sort of sort of variety of stress-related physical ailments um that, you know, kind of knocked me out. So after about three and a half years and, you know, having a conversation with a law firm partner who was basically like you know, you have to pick. <laughs> this, this is not. You know, you can't do both of these things forever. Um, I decided I would try my hand at freelancing, um, and you know, saved up a little bit of money. Still had, still do have tremendous law school loans that are more than my rent. Um, but decided to give it a go, and it certainly is not an easy thing, and it has not been a particularly financially stable thing. But it, it has not been something that I've ever look back on with any sort of regret even I, when I have like twelve ninety nine in my bank yeah.
0: account that I mean that I mean that's like just kind of going going crazy from like one of the highest paying jobs you could have to one of the lowest paying jobs lowest. You could have. <laughs> yes well there also must be a freedom about like you know not being like attached right it's not like something you know I have two kids it's not so like something I could like think of doing now you know what I right. mean it's like uh, not that I would I would want to become a lawyer and, and stop being a professional whatever it is I do um, <laughs> but I mean that I mean that there like, I, I mean, it must have been like in, in a way liberating and, in, 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 you know, to the point of, of your book, like your own kind of pursuit of something that is fulfilling and, and is not just something you have to do, but something that you like want to do.
1: Definitely. Um, you know, I don't want to downplay the kind of real financial stress <laughs> that this causes. Um, and you're right. I don't have kids. You know, I had a cat to feed and that was it. So that it felt much more manageable. And I think my calculus would have been very different if I had been responsible for really anyone but myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I remember being a lawyer and, you know, I was, I was making a a good amount of money, but almost all of it was getting thrown toward my student loans. So I was still living with like a roommate in Brooklyn, um, and trying to live fairly reasonably, but you know, I didn't have a lot else that really made me happy. So I remember like, I would just like shop online like three times a week, just cause like hitting the click button would be this little surge of, you know, some sort of like positive chemical, um, that I wasn't really getting anywhere else in my life. Um, and it was interesting to see when I started freelancing, I mean, not only could I, I guess not afford anymore to do a lot of that stuff, but how much I just didn't crave it because so, so much of, um, just what I do professionally feels like a gift and not a job. I mean, I just get to talk to interesting people all day and like write what I think on the internet and people pay me money for it. Um, That's amazing. And I sort of can't imagine uh, anything better.
0: So where did the uh, germ of the genesis of the idea for your book come from?
1: Yeah. So I mean, it came from writing about kind of the same uh, often sort of depressing topics over and over again. So You know, the kind of dark joke is that I've been on the rape and abortion beat for 10 years. Um, So end up writing about things like sexual violence, uh, reproductive rights, which frankly don't have to be depressing, but uh, in reality, because of sort of the variety of uh, laws that we have that restrict women's access, and then cultural ideas about women having sex um, are not not particularly pleasant uh, things for women. And sort of just came to realize that the underlying theme of so much of women's lives was trying to be happy, trying to seek pleasure, and kind of hitting roadblocks. Um, And roadblocks that are very man-made, that are either either about uh, sort of very uh, conservative cultural norms, or about actual policies and laws and decisions by people in power to make women's lives harder. Um, so that was the idea for the book. Like, what would it look like if if this stuff didn't exist? Um, and if women got to kind of set out what a happy life looked like.
0: So I, I read the excerpt in in the Times, which is great. Um, I have not read the book yet. But like, what, what are your big conclusions? Like, what, what do you find? Like, what, Is there like a policy prescription for this?
1: Yeah. So I have some policy ideas at the end of the book. Um, the sort of big thing I was trying to get to was this idea that our laws, policies, and institutions have really been created By men and for men, and by and for a pretty small group of men, right? The men that kind of looked like the founders of the country. So, men who are relatively wealthy and white. Um, And so, it's from that baseline is what women are now trying to catch up to, right? So, we're trying to make ourselves equal to men in a system that they've built to serve themselves. I don't know that that's going to happen. Um, And I don't know that even if it did happen, it would be exactly what we wanted. So, I was interested in kind of interrogating this question of, Okay, what if we were the ones that got to build these foundations and got to set up our institutions according to the sort of the rhythms of our lives and our needs? And if we got to dictate law and policy according to what we want.
0: Um,
1: And that's I mean, that's a huge question. And I I don't know that I fully answer it. Um, But I do think you would see a few things be really different. I don't think you would have this kind of bright line between the domestic and the public. Um, you know, we're sort of women have traditionally occupied a domestic sphere and men have occupied sort of the rest of the world, the workplace, our political, um, our political institutions just sort of out the outside of the home. I don't think you would see our workplaces be so clearly defined of like you bring your work self to work and you leave everything else back at home with, you know, a sort of silent and unpaid partner. Um, yeah. So policy wise, I mean, of course, like there's the laundry list of feminist demands that we've been, frankly, demanding for like 40 years. Uh, things like paid parental leave. Uh, I would love to see universal child care um, instead of just mm-hmm. affordable child care. Um, but, you know, I'd, one of the goals of the book is to also kind of get people thinking of, well, are we just trying to kind of patch up holes in a broken system? Um, or is it possible to sort of rebuild some of these things from the ground up? So I hope that
0: that's more of a starting so, point. <laughs> so what? Yeah, I mean, so so what does this have to do with with happiness? Like, how, how does happiness uh, mm-hmm. fit fit into this? Because your your book comes at I think a really interesting time in like what is a global debate about about the role of happiness in Mm -hmm. setting public policy, right? There is this idea that is still, I think, in its early stages that happiness is not something that's merely like an individual pursuit, but can be something quantified as a public good, and that public policy can be oriented uh, around it. You have things like the World Happiness Report, which the the UN puts out every year. Um, There are even some governments around the world that have instituted like ministries of happiness, like the government of the... United Arab Emirates, uh, I think the government of Slovenia. Italy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they have one. So it's this idea that is just kind of starting to form, which I find kind of interesting. I've done some Uh, Episodes about it in the past for for the podcast, but it's just something that I I find kind of cutting edge and something that used to be kind of like dismissed as as not like serious, uh, or at least in like from from like a public policy standpoint. But more and more is gaining acceptance. So I'm wondering Mm -hmm. like how the ideas in your book kind of fit into that larger conversation, that larger debate.
1: Sure. So. In the U.S., we're fairly unique in that at least the pursuit of happiness was one of our founding promises, right? So in the Declaration of Independence, the founders wrote in that, you know, men are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, You know, we know that that was only a pretty small subgroup of men that that were actually entitled to that at the time. Um, But what they meant by that um, was not happiness in terms of like, everybody gets to feel good every day. It was this more what what researchers call the eudaimonic view of happiness, which is about fulfillment and seeking knowledge and adventure and interesting experiences and having a life that maybe is not always easy, but that is full and interesting um, and getting to kind of forge your own identity. And that was a very explicitly political promise that was made in the U.S. And a lot of our institutions have kind of been built around that. sort of male identity has always been more kind of public facing, right? Um, Relating to work, relating to adventure, relating to this kind of sense of sort of, you know, rugged American individualism. Um, Women haven't had that same model. There isn't the same sort of outward face of identity for women. Um, For women, identity has traditionally been kind of much more inward looking. Um, You identify relationally. You're a wife, a daughter, a mother, Um, and it's also much more about sacrifice and what you do for other people. And that very much is kind of tied up in our ideas of the ideal feminine in the U S. Um, and yeah, so, you know, I was sort of interested in, okay, we, this is the the founding point, this promise of the pursuit of happiness, um, that our political system has very much been, you know, set up, uh, to bring to a certain certain, uh, proportion of the population. So what would a female pursuit of happiness look like and how can we create the landscape that will allow women to, you know, both, you know, pursue the sort of individual uh, fulfillment that comes with a happy day to day life, but also this bigger idea of what a happy life means. What is it, you know, what would it look like for the government to help women to pursue identities that are not purely relational, um, to pursue adventure, to pursue knowledge? Um, And yeah, so uh, the World Happiness Report is something that I quote in the book and and rely on, um, and that relies more on kind of like the day-to-day policies can promote that. And I think that's really important as well. Um, but I think kind of taking these things twofold and saying like, how can we promote kind of day-to-day pleasures, um, but also how can we set up a system in which women are able to really forge their own paths? Um, the way that at least a small subgroup of men has long been able to is a really worthy feminist goal.
0: So what kind of like pushback are you getting? because this is kind of, if not radical, it's it's like controversial and and radical, I, I would say, to at least a certain subset of of people like what what kind of responses are you having so far? I mean, I know we are talking about the Bush book was published two weeks ago.
1: Yeah, it came out on May second. so it's still it's still pretty new.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, I would say the, the response has been overwhelmingly positive, which has been really, really nice. Um where I have gotten pushback, is, you know, primarily this idea that happiness is a little bit frivolous, right? Mm -hmm. That, look, you know, we are in Donald Trump's America right now. Um, there are people who are, you know, suffering, who are being deported. Um, we have so many kind of immediate challenges, you know, mothers trying to get food on the table to feed their kids. Is happiness really the thing that we should be focusing on? Isn't this kind of like a bougie endeavor? Um, that I think would say that's kind of the biggest critique I think from the left. And then I think from the right, it's just like, you just want women to get laid all the time, um, which is not false, but, uh, but you know, this argument that I just kind of want to rely on like the government to facilitate women having good sex lives seems to be the the caricature from the right, which is not exactly what I say. Um, but you know, this sort of is this frivolous argument I do think is a fair one, you know, that said you know, like I said before, women, I think in almost every aspect of life do kind of seek happiness and pleasure the best they can, even in very difficult circumstances. And this idea that happiness is a luxury good or that a good life is a luxury good, um, I think is pretty backwards. And, you know, really, I mean, if, if not to be happy and to feel fulfilled, then what are we all doing here? And if we put that, I think is the big goal a lot of the stuff that we always fight about um, and that feminists have been pushing for for a long time, I think will naturally follow.
0: Uh, well, Jill, thank you so much. This was great.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I'm hopeful that maybe in the near future we can like reconnect on like a fourth continent.
1: I hope so. Come visit Nairobi. We have a guest room, Mark.
0: Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Jill. And again, you can go to bloggingheads.tv to watch us have this conversation and and watch other conversations as well. Huge favor to ask before I sign off. If you are a regular listener to this show, could you please leave a review on iTunes? It really helps boost the visibility of the show uh, among other people who are searching for shows about foreign policy and world affairs the way in which itunes ranks shows in their search results is, is basically weighed heavily on the number of reviews it gets so more reviews more listeners it's a virtuous cycle so thank you for contributing to that and leaving a review and i'll post a link to where you can leave a review on the description field of this podcast episode all right we'll see you next time bye
1: The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of humanity in action.